19. And in our study today of John's Gospel, we come to the very last moments of Jesus' life. And the entire scope of Jesus' life is very important for us, but it's not the life of Jesus that actually changes us. Jesus provides a great example for us to live by. His life is one that we ought to emulate. We would all do well to do that. But Jesus' life is not what, is not what actually makes you a different person. That takes the death of Jesus Christ. In order for you to be changed, it takes what Jesus did on the cross. And it's possible for us to survey the many wonderful things that Jesus did in his life and for us to come to the conclusion that his death must be the greatest tragedy that the world has ever seen. But as you look at Jesus' life, and if you understand this as a Christian, you know that you can't come down to the end of Jesus' life and listen to the words that he spoke and understand what he did on that cross and think that it was a tragedy. It was not a tragedy. It was a triumph. And in fact, it's the greatest triumph that the world has ever known. And it is the death of Jesus Christ that actually changes us. When Jesus came down to these last hours of his life and when he hung on that cross and he spoke the words that it was finished, at that time Jesus was declaring that his work that God had called him to do from before the foundation of the world, all of it was accomplished. And if Jesus' purpose had been merely to live, then God could have snatched him out of this life as miraculously as he implanted him into the womb of the Virgin Mary. But Jesus didn't come just to live, he came to die. If Jesus had come just to live, then he would have left behind him a university for life studies. And that's what we'd be doing today, we'd be studying his life. And if Jesus had come merely to heal, and that was his purpose, then he would have left behind him a hospital, or perhaps a health care organization. But Jesus didn't come just for those things, Jesus came to die, and through his death, lives are changed. Now today we're going to talk about the final words that Jesus spoke from the cross. I have three verses that I'd like to read this morning from John chapter 19. So if you please stand with me, we're going to begin reading in verse number 28. And as we read this scripture, Jesus has now been hanging on the cross for six hours. And from the hours of 12 o'clock noon until 3 in the afternoon, there was pitch black darkness that came over the entire earth. Jesus in that time was forsaken by his father when all of the wrath of sin and of God was hurled against him as he was hanging there. And so in verse number 28 it says, After this, or after that darkness, and after the suffering of the cross, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished, Jesus said. That's three words that we read in the English, but only one word in the Greek, and the word is tetelestai. And Jesus said, It's finished. And that one word, tetelestai, shook the entire foundations of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father... We come to you today, and we do thank you as our Father. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ into the world to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Lord, as we think about these last words of Jesus from the cross, help us to understand all that was finished when you went there. 
And we thank you, Lord, most of all for the salvation that you've given us because of that cross. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 1837, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote a poem entitled The Concord Hymn. That poem was written in dedication of a battle monument in Concord, Massachusetts. Those of you that know the history of the Revolutionary War, you know that the first battle that was fought was at the Battle of Con- Lexington and Concord. And in, that, uh, in Concord, Massachusetts, there is a, a statue called the Minuteman Statue. And inscribed upon his statue, are on that Minuteman Statue, are the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And there's a very famous line that Emerson wrote. The first stanza contains a very famous line, and some of you will recognize it when I read it, but in that first stanza, Emerson wrote, by the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot that was heard round the world. And indeed, that first shot fired in the Revolutionary War was heard around the world. And as we come down today, we know that as America goes, so goes the world. That was an important point in history. But far more important than that powerful shot that was heard around the world is the word that was heard around the world. And it was the word that Jesus spoke on the cross. And when Jesus spoke that one word, it was for the history of all the world, past, present, and future. And the word was tetelestai, it is finished. And when Jesus spoke that word, it was the last word for our redemption. Now today I'd like to talk to you about three things that were finished when Jesus spoke that word. The sentence, it is finished, three words in the English, but one very powerful word in the Greek. Now first of all, I want to show you today that when Jesus spoke those words, that his suffering, Jesus' suffering was finished. After so long that he had hung on the cross, the suffering was now over. And this is truly remarkable because when Jesus came down to those last moments of his life, the authority to end his life did not rest in the people that were there that day. The authority to end his life was not in the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross. Jesus had authority and a power and power over his own life. And so when he spoke those words, it is finished, he gave up his life. He surrendered his life. When he determined that it was time for his life to be over, then he said, it is finished. And I think that he was as glad to get rid of that suffering as we would be. And when he spoke those words, it is finished, there were three types of suffering that were over for him. First, I think we can say that the anticipated suffering was over. The anticipated suffering. And I hope that you understand what I mean by that because Jesus was not looking forward to this. And and you've probably faced something in your lifetime that you really didn't want to look forward to. You You weren't happy that it was going to happen. I know when I was a child that uh, my mom sent me to a dentist who must have been a demon from hell. And if, and if you ask me, do you believe in demons? I'd say, absolutely, I do, because every six months I had to go to one. And I, and I dreaded, I dreaded the anticipation of it, of going to see that guy. 
Some of you may have a surgery that's been scheduled or have in the past, and you've dreaded that surgery, the anticipation of it. You know that that's going to hurt. And you think about uh, having to have that operation and, and, and the rehabilitation time that, that takes uh, after that surgery, and you don't like the anticipation of it. You're not looking forward to it. You know, as I've gotten older... I've become less afraid of hospital and surgery than I was before because now I look at the hospital as a time to get some rest. I'm probably the only one around who looks forward to seeing an anesthesiologist. But uh, uh, we're frightened by things like that, the anticipation of it, the anticipated suffering of going through a surgery. But Jesus had something that was far worse than a surgery to go through. In fact, throughout his whole life, he knew that the awful pain and the suffering of the cross was coming. He knew that it was going to happen. And he knew that going to that cross would be painful. He knew that the full wrath and fury of God would be poured out against him. And he knew that that was going to hurt. And I could imagine that as a young boy, when he was working in Joseph's carpentry shop, that he thought about that. As he took those pieces of lumber and he passed them along to his father, Joseph, that he thought about that as he, as he handled that rough sawn lumber. And he must have thought that in the future, there was coming a day when there would be two beams, two wooden beams uh, that would be nailed together. And then he would be put on that cross that was made for him. As a teenager, as he drove nails into wood, as he was uh, helping his father to build houses, I'm sure he thought that sometime there's going to be a hammer that's going to be raised and nails will be driven into my hands and my feet. And he thought about that time. When he was young, he would watch uh, soldiers as they, or rather uh, farmers as they took their, their goods to market and he watched them as they drove their oxen through the street and he would, uh, they, they, they would whip those oxen with a whip and he thought about that, that one day there was going to be a whip that would be laid against his back. And he anticipated, he saw it coming, he knew it would happen. And in his life, I know he saw many times that there were Roman crosses that were erected, and he saw the suffering men who died on those crosses. And he knew, someday, that's coming for me. I'm going to have to suffer being nailed to a cross. And so for 33 years, Jesus lived in that anticipation of the suffering that was coming. But here we find him on the cross now. The time has come. Jesus is about to give up his life. And all the anticipation is over. It's all through. He's been through it. The anticipated suffering is over. But then when he spoke that last word, tetelestai, also the physical suffering was over. Now, the anticipated suffering was over, but of course, it was much more than anticipated suffering because the suffering also became very real. It was physical. Now, we notice that the writers of the gospel accounts don't spend very much time talking about the suffering of the cross. They don't give us very much description. And here in the book of John, we see as we read the account, they, they tell, John tells us nothing at all. He gives us no information about the suffering of the cross and how awful that that was. And we think, well, why is that? Why didn't the gospel writers explain a little bit more about this? Well, th- there may be various reasons, but I think surely one of the reasons must be that these people had seen it before. They'd experienced it. They'd watched it before. They didn't need to be told how terrible that crucifixion was. See, the Roman cross was not a Jewish way of of punishment, not a Jewish way of death. 
I mean, this was, this was brought to their land by outsiders. And, and the death of the cross was intended, its purpose was to strike fear into the heart of the people. The Romans were trying to send these people a message. This is what happens when you don't obey Roman law. And so they nailed people to crosses and they said, this is what we do to criminals. And so the people where Jesus lived, they didn't need to be reminded of that because they'd witnessed it already before. Well, we haven't seen it. We haven't experienced it. And we don't really know the depth of the suffering that was involved with the cross. The physical pain of it was intense. And when you think about it, even the preparation for the cross was horrible. They beat him. Now, in these Roman beatings, what they would do is they would take a man and they'd, and they'd drape him around a post. And then soldiers or someone who was trained with a whip, two of them would alternate as they laid the, ba- uh, the stripes on that person. And they very carefully did this. They made sure that the, the back and the backs of the arms and the legs, the buttocks, all, that they were, they were covered with stripes. And they used a whip that had pieces of bone and metal on the ends of it to just dig furrows into the back of the one who was being beaten. Now, the Jewish law said that a person couldn't be beaten with more than 40 stripes. That was against their law. And so what the Jews would do is they would limit a beating to 39 lashes. And the reason they did that was because they, would afraid, they were afraid they might miscount. And if they miscounted, they would break the Jewish law. So they would use no more than 39 lashes. But the Romans didn't have a law like that. And the soldiers who beat Jesus, those people were told to do only one thing. Don't kill the prisoner. But in fact, many people did die from those beatings beforehand. And so the beating was awful. He was beaten, as we know. His back was was torn apart by that whip. And then they took a scarlet robe and they put it on Jesus' back. He wore that robe for a while. But do you remember they took the robe off of him? Can you imagine what that must have been like? Here, this robe that's pressed into the flesh of his back, and now the blood has dried against it. And then when they're ready to take it from him, they just rip it from his back. We can't even imagine the pain and the suffering that must have gone along with that. The Bible tells us that he plucked out his beard. They hit him with sticks. His face was beaten to a bloody mess. Uh, they, They... loosened his teeth each with each of those blows. They placed, placed that crown of thorns upon his head. And then we know that in all that pain and agony that Jesus suffered, that they wanted him to carry his own cross up that hill. But the pain and the shock of that was too much for him. And so he fell beneath the load. But finally, they did take that cross up the hill and they took Jesus. They laid the cross down and they stretched him over that cross. One arm this way, one arm that way, and they drove nails into his hands. And then they took his feet and they placed one over the other. And they took a long spike that was long enough to reach through both. And they nailed that spike and fastened him to that cross. And so every nerve of his body was affected. And that physical suffering, it was intense. It was real pain. But do you know something? Jesus came down to the end of all of that with a sense of victory. And he said, it is finished. The anticipated pain, the physical pain, it was over with. But there was also another type of suffering that Jesus went through. And this was over as well. The spiritual suffering was over. And the spiritual suffering, that was the absolute worst. 
You know, you and I, we can experience anticipated suffering. We do that. We, we certainly can experience physical suffering. We have physical suffering all the time. And it's even possible that we could go through the death of a crucifixion. On the day that Jesus was crucified, there were two others crucified with him. So people went through this cru- these crucifixions. But one thing that they couldn't do, and one thing that you and I cannot do, we could not experience the spiritual suffering that Jesus went through. Only he could do that. Only the God-man could do that. And Jesus experienced horrible spiritual suffering. In that time, Jesus became sin. The curse of sin was laid upon him. The sins of everyone who would believe was placed upon Christ. He'd personally never committed a sin, had never done any wrong. He was pure. He was spotless. He was undefiled, never committed a sin in all of his life. But the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians, For he hath made him, that is, God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Sin was on him. And we could never imagine how repulsive that was. A holy and righteous God, one who could never sin, now he's drenched in that putrefying, foul-smelling stench of the vomit of sin. And it was so horrible and so repulsive that the Heavenly Father could no longer look upon him. The Heavenly Father had to turn his back on him And Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But now all of that's over. And so he he cries out, it is finished. And that wasn't a sound of defeat. It was a sound of victory. Jesus had gone through it all, anticipated suffering, physical suffering, spiritual suffering. And Jesus came out on the other side, the victor. Tetelestai, he said, it is finished. And that suffering was over. But I want you to understand that that's not all that was over when Jesus spoke that word. This was a word that was heard round the world because also at this time, Satan's power was finished. Satan, the prince and the power of the air, the god of this world, Satan was finished. The cross did him in. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. I want you to hear what the writer of Hebrews wrote. He said, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So now Satan is destroyed. Now you hear me say that and you're probably thinking, What do you mean Satan is destroyed? Pastor, that happened 2,000 years ago. How can you say that Satan is destroyed? If he's destroyed, who is this that bothers me all the time? Who is that? Well, destroyed doesn't mean that he was annihilated. What it means is that Satan has been rendered powerless. The Bible calls him a roaring lion. But I want you to know that since the cross, he's been a toothless lion because his power has been destroyed. Satan is alive. He may be still alive today, but he's not well since the cross. Satan was terminally wounded at the cross. His end is coming. Now, there are two ways in which Satan's power is finished. First, his power of sin was over. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, there you'll find that old serpent. You find Satan, the devil, and he's tempting Adam. Creation is just a few days old And Satan has already begun to cast doubt on God's truthfulness. 
And he speaks to Adam and he says, Yea, or he speaks to Eve, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Ye shall not surely die? For God knoweth that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall become as gods. And that was the lie that Satan told Eve. And don't you know something? Satan's ambassadors are out there still today telling the same old lies. They're telling people that you can be gods. Did you know that some Saturday morning or sometime during the week, there may be two guys right up to your house on bicycles with white shirts and ties, and they'll knock on your door, and they're preaching a message that says, you can be gods. And you know something? It's the same old lie of the slithering serpent. It hasn't changed at all. Satan's still saying the same things. But I want to tell you something. When Jesus said, it is finished, the second Adam reversed the sin of the first Adam. And he took away the power of sin to destroy your whole life forever. Did you know that? But not only that, not only was Satan's power of sin taken away and it was over, but also his power of death was over. Hebrews 2.14 says that Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death. Now understand that because that doesn't mean that Satan ever had the power to kill your soul, but it does mean that death had been Satan's domain. That's where Satan reigned. Before the cross, there was the fear of death. Death is an abiding fear that all men have. And I want you to know that if you don't know Jesus today, you have every reason to fear death. You should still fear death. Death brings down the mightiest warriors. Death brings down the greatest kings. Death deposes presidents and parliaments. Death is something for you to fear if you don't know Christ. A man on his deathbed has no power at all because Satan reigns in the domain of death and you're helpless against that. But Jesus came to destroy the power of death. In the book of Hebrews, there is a description given to us of how Jesus became both a, a priest and a king. In the Old Testament, as you know the story, how the Old Testament goes that the kings had to come from the tribe of Judah. The priest came from the tribe of Levi, And those two things never mixed. If you were from the tribe of Judah, you couldn't be a priest. And if you were from the tribe of Levi, you couldn't be a king. But the Bible tells us that Jesus was both a priest and a king. Jesus was born from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings. So how is it possible then that he could also become a priest? Well, the Bible shows us how because the Bible says that Jesus had a different priesthood. And his priesthood was not from Levi. His priesthood was from Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an Old Testament character who lived at the time of Abraham. And the Bible describes Melchizedek as king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. So united in one person were the offices of priest and king. Now, before the Levitical priesthood, that's when Melchizedek lived. So he wasn't bound by the Mosaic law that said that he could not be a priest if he was a king. So there were two offices united in him. Now, here's what the Bible says about Jesus. In Hebrews 7, it says, And yet it is far more evident, for that after the similitude, or after the likeness of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment or after the laws of Moses, but after the power of an endless life. Who better to destroy death than somebody who has the power of endless life? And that's what Jesus had. You may remember the Old Testament story of Samson. 
Samson lost his power with God when he went into the devil's barber shop. Delilah cut his hair, and his hair was a symbol of the power that he had with God. We find Samson at the very end of his life in a very terrible moment as we would look at it. Samson's eyes have been put out by his enemies. He's being ridiculed and laughed at. But Samson asked for one thing. He asked those people that were making fun of them. He said, lead me over to the pillars that hold up this great temple where we are. And then all these people were in the temple of the Philistine god Dagon. And Samson asked to be led to those pillars. And by this time, Samson's hair had begun to grow back out again. And Samson prayed one last time to God. And he said, let me be avenged of my enemies. And so they placed uh, Samson's arms around those two pillars. And like a great actor on God's stage, Samson brought the house down. And you know what happened when Jesus went to the cross? He put one hand on the pillar of sin. And he put one hand on the pillar of death. And he pushed it down and he destroyed it. Now Samson died and Jesus died in the process as well. But as he died, what he did, he finished Satan's power forever. But we're not through with this yet because there's something else that was finished at the cross. You and I are also involved in this. And thank the Lord that we are because there's something here for everyone who believes in Jesus. Because of the death of the cross, our salvation was finished. Everything that had to be done for salvation was completed on that cross. Jesus did it all. But you know there's some people that are spelling salvation in the wrong way. Some people are spelling salvation as D-O. Things that you do, you have to do in order to be saved. And so some people will say, well, take me over here to this baptistry and baptize me. Put me under the water and that's the way that I'll be saved. Other people are saying, well, let me become a member of somebody's church. Put my name on their church roll and that's the way that I want to be saved. Still others are saying, well, let me bring my tithes and my offerings to church. And through that, that's the way that I'll be saved. And did you know that the largest church in the world today says that you must do penance in order to be saved? You need to go into a confessional booth and you need to confess your sins to somebody. You need to keep the sacraments. You need to take the Eucharist. You need to be confirmed. And on and on and on they go, do, 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 do. And that's the way they think they're going to be saved. D-O, that's the way to be saved. Others today are spelling salvation D-O-N-T, don't. And they think it's by the things that you don't do. That's the way that I'm going to be saved. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. And so that's going to save me. If I just stay away from the things that I don't do. And so salvation for them is thou shalt not. Thou shalt not do this. And so they're keeping up their rules and their regulations and they think that's the way that they're going to be saved. But I want to tell you something today. If you've been spelling salvation D-O or D-O-N-T, you're probably not as smart as a fifth grader because that's not the way that you spell salvation. Salvation is spelled D-O-N-E. Salvation is done. Everything's been done. Everything that needed to be done for our salvation was completed on that cross. Jesus said, it is finished. He paid it all. And he doesn't leave anything for us to do. He said, tetelestai, it's finished. Now, the meaning of that word is what really makes that word come alive. This is a word that was used in in commerce. It was used in secular business transactions. 
When a purchaser paid off a contract, the merchant would stamp over his bill, paid in full. And friends, when Jesus finished our salvation, I want you to know, our sin debt was paid in full. The sin debt was paid in full. In a few minutes, we're going to sing about that. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Did you know that God has put a price tag on eternal life? Did you know that? And the price tag's too high for anybody to pay. You can't pay it. In order for you to pay the price tag for eternal life, you know what what has to happen? You have to be totally perfect. You have to be totally righteous, totally pure, totally sinless. You can't have one single solitary bad act, sinful act, or even a sinful thought. And that doesn't mean just for an hour... And it doesn't mean just for a day or for a week or for a month or for a year. It means for your entire life. You can commit no sin. It also means that your propensity to sin can't be there as well. You can't even have that sin nature. You can't go to heaven with that. You can't pay this price tag. It also means that you better not die. Because if you die, that means there's proof that you've sinned. The price is too high for you to pay. Nobody can pay it. And that means that there's only one person who can pay the debt of sin. And he had to be both God and man. And in fact, he was God and man. And his name is Jesus Christ. We can't pay it all. But Jesus did pay it all. And that's why salvation can't be spelled D-O, not D-O-N-T. Salvation has to be spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. You could never pay it by anything that you do or you don't do. Because the price is too high. Now let me show you something else about this word tetelestai. It was also used in the Roman criminal justice system. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that someone stole a chariot. Somebody wasn't thinking so they left their keys in their chariot. Or they forgot to put the the steering wheel lock on it. And so somebody comes along and steals a chariot. Well this man gets caught and so he has to spend five years in prison for stealing a chariot. So they put him in a prison and they put a parchment on his cell door. And on the cell door, they would put his name, they would put the crime that he committed, and the length of the sentence that he had to be in jail. But when that five years is up, and he served all of his sentence, they would let the man out of the prison cell, they would take the parchment down, and they would write across that parchment the very same word that Jesus used on the cross. They would write on that, tetelestai. It's finished. It's done. It's all been paid. So if that man ever went out and someone saw him on the street and someone says, hey, what are you doing out of jail? You must have broken out. You haven't served your time. No, he pulls out that parchment and on the parchment it says, tetelestai. It's finished. I've served my time. So here's another thing about it I want you to recognize that once our sin debt is paid in full, Or because of that also, our punishment was accepted by him. Jesus agreed to accept our punishment. You ever heard the saying, if you do the crime, you do the time? If you do the crime, you do the time? Well, in this case, the time is endless, an endless period in the punishing fires of hell. That's God's penalty for sin. Sins are against an eternally righteous, infinite, and holy God. And so they require punishment in the everlasting fires of hell. That's the requirement that God has because of sin. 
Well, the Bible teaches that all of us are sinners by nature. We're all sinners by choice. We, we live that way every day. And we deserve the punishment of hell. We deserve to go to hell. But God has agreed that he will accept the punishment that was placed upon Christ on that cross as a substitute for our punishment. God says that I'm going to take that in place of the punishment that you should have to take. And so when I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he wrote across my parchment, paid in full. He handed my parchment and he said, paid in full. And friend, when you stand before God, the only thing that God will ever accept for your access into heaven is what Jesus did on that cross. Now, I want you to understand something. God is holy and righteous. God must punish sin. His righteousness, His holiness, His justice doesn't allow Him to forgive, give sins, forgive sins without satisfaction made to His law. So in other words, what I've just said, if you do the crime, you have to do the time. You will be punished for your sins. Now, either you will suffer for your sins or Christ has taken that punishment for you. Now, let me illustrate it for you. All of you know that every summer there's a danger of, of wildfires here in California. Thousands upon thousands of acres are burned every year in wildfires. Sometimes those fires are so fierce... They move so quickly that fighting a fire with water or with chemicals just doesn't work. And we've seen stories, we've read in the paper of people who've got caught in those fires. They can't get out. Sometimes it even happens to a fireman. I mean, they, it, just, it just consumes them and they can't get away from it. So sometimes what a fireman will do is he'll set a fire to stop a fire. In other words, he goes into an area, a cleared out area, and onto a patch of land or a field, and he starts a controlled fire. And what he does is he burns off all of the grass and all the fuel for the fire. And so when the fire comes, it'll stop there. It doesn't have any more fuel to burn, so it stops. And so what the fireman will do, he'll go and he'll stand in that patch of already burned ground because the fire won't burn there any longer. There's no fuel for it. Now, do you see my point here? On the cross, Jesus went into the fires of God's punishment and the Bible says that when you trust Jesus, when you take him as your Savior, that you are placed inside of Christ. And the fire of God's judgment and God's punishment has already fallen on Christ. The fires of hell have already burned in Christ as he was there on that cross. And so if you are in Christ, then that means that the fire is never going to reach you. It's already burned there. And when you're in him, you can never be punished for your sins. Peter says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. And so do you see what happened? God's judgment fell at the cross. The punishment for sin fell on Jesus at that cross. The only place that you can ever go for a pardon for your sins, the only place that you'll ever be safe from the fires of hell is at the old rugged cross. It's the only place that you can go. If you haven't trusted Jesus, that's the place where you need to go. You can't be safe any other way. You'll never escape hell unless you see Jesus hanging on that cross and knew and know what he did for you. The old rugged cross. Last week, Catherine sang it so beautifully for us. 
Wonderful job that she did singing that. What wonderful words the old rugged cross that hymn has. I want you to just sing that a little bit of that with me, if you would, please. Sing it with me together. The song says, On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame And I love that old cross Where the dearest and best For a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross. And exchange it someday for a crown. Sing another verse. In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross. And exchange it someday for a crown. Would you write down this last statement? Tetelestai. It is finished. When Jesus spoke those words, Jesus got the last word. Not Pilate, not the crowd, not the devil. No one had victory over Jesus. And those were words, friend, that were heard around the world. That's the gospel of our salvation. How that Jesus died, how that he was buried, and how that he rose again. Thank God that salvation was finished at the cross. There's nothing left for us to do. I want to ask you, is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? If you feel him speaking to you right now, do you know what that is? That's God giving you the faith to come to him. That's God telling you, you can be saved today. All you need to do is trust him. All you need to do is put your faith, your reliance, everything that you are in him, and understand that the punishment of God was paid at Calvary. Jesus paid it all, and all you need to do is to trust him. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, we're so thankful for Jesus Christ who went to the cross. He paid a price that was impossible for us to pay, and we thank you that you have agreed to accept that punishment there as the payment for our sins. I ask you, Lord, if there's some person here today who hasn't yet trusted you as Savior, that they might understand this at this very moment. They need to know you right now. Would you speak to their hearts and would you draw them to you? And then for Christians who are here today and they are saved, they they do know 
what you've done at the cross. Help us, Lord, to be ever mindful of it so that we tell others what was done there. Help us to be a witness for you. Speak to our people today in this time of invitation. Help us to remember that old rugged cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.